Welcome to the Alternative Data Podcast. Welcome to the Alternative Data Podcast, powered by Exabel. I'm Mark Fleming-Williams. In this episode, I speak to Lucas von Royce, CEO of QuantIP, the Munich-based provider of patent data. In our conversation, Lucas and I discuss why Munich is the patent center of Germany and Europe, the way patents are produced, what QuantIP does to make the data usable for investors, and the varied use cases for such a data set. So in this episode, I'm joined by Lucas von Royce of QuantIP. Thank you very much for joining today, Lucas. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. Um, Lucas, I am excited to talk to you. You uh, QuantIP is a provider of a form of alternative data that I haven't featured on this on this. Uh, podcast before so that's always a, that's always a great pleasure for me and also the fact that you're based in Munich is another pleasure for me because I'm always doing my bit to to bring more attention to the European alternative data scene so that's a uh, that's a, a great joy for me um, perhaps we could begin by um, could you just give a very brief overview of QuantIP and, and what what the company offers Sure, sure, I can do that. Um, so QuantIP was uh, founded in 2018. I co-founded QuantIP with uh, people uh, with deep domain knowledge in the field of patent information. So IP lawyers with uh, 30 plus years experience and uh, people with a background in econometrics. Um, so uh, from the beginning, we tried to bring together uh, yeah, uh, quant people with uh, deep knowledge of, of patent information and patent databases. Um, so QuantIP has been founded to offer um, non-IP professionals, of course, uh, mainly investors, I would say, um, access to information insights of uh, global patent databases. And um, as the name indicates, QuantIP, we do everything on a quantitative basis. So everything that we do uh, is, uh, is around algorithms and uh, rule-based um, metrics. Um, currently, we're offering... Um, a very broad range of uh, deliverables, uh, deliverables, I would say, to serve like very different um, use cases um, from data feeds with a long um, history to API access um, to uh, visualized reports uh, for more for fundamental people. Uh, everything basically uh, for people that need to take decisions on either equity, credit, um, transactions in the private markets, whatever. Um, and that's where we are right now. Fantastic. Okay, brilliant. So that's QuantIP. Um, so as you mentioned, you, you you founded this in January 2018. You co-founded this in January 2018. Um, but before that, uh, quite unusually, you had been editor-in-chief uh, for the monthly financial magazine called Euro um, up until December 2017 for, for Finance and Verlag. So you, you had a journalist journalism background before getting into QuantIP. First question did you stop editing the monthly financial magazine Euro because it got boring because everyone stopped talking about the dissolution of the of the Euro and it started being a plain <laughs> plain sailing? There was no fun to be had anymore. Um, no. Um, so <laughs> my, my previous job was a, was a lot of fun, um, but uh, you have to keep in mind that I I went to the position of editor in chief at the age of thirty four, mm. and if you're thirty four and you become editor in chief, of course the first two years are very exciting, but then you realize that you're probably not going to do this job for the end of the year, your life. Um, and I always was very interested in um, let's say new the new way of working in, in the asset management industry. So I was following um, the, the rise of alternative information, rise of alternative data and uh, more quantitative approaches or quantum mental approaches. Everybody these days is kind of a quant, I would say. Mm. Um, and um, I just get very excited about the opportunity to uh, bring a totally, I would say, I would say totally new, but really, really new uh, data set uh, or, or source of information to the market. I read, I met the right kind of people, and, and and that's where the story starts. 
you so you were you were um were you based in munich at the time yeah so you're in munich yeah. there isn't a huge alternative data scene based out of munich that i have come across please please correct me um <laughs> if if there is then please tell me about it or if not how were you coming across alternative data was it a, a german thing or were you were you looking across the uh, across the pond at the united states I mean, when I was uh, covering asset management, it became clear that um, with the rise of alternative data, it's going to be a global business from from day one. So being located in Munich as a company doesn't really make a difference. Uh, so our first customer, for example, comes from the west coast of the US and uh, we are, you know, and the second one from, from Singapore. So uh, that's not really an issue. I think that Munich is an obvious place to start an IP uh, related uh, company, and anyhow, because we're we're um, we're the German patent office is based, where the European patent office is based, and uh, we have probably more uh, IP lawyers here in the city per um, per inhabitant than 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 any other place. Wow, is there is there? Are you aware of a reason for that? Why Bavaria? Why Munich? Oh, it's very simple. So the, the German patent office is located here for probably the reasons that it used to be far away from the Iron Curtain back then. Yeah. And uh, the European patent office, uh, I don't know who took the decision to, to place it here, but um, important European institutions like that are spread over a couple of countries. And uh, I don't know how Munich uh, was able to get that. But um, yeah, it, it made the city uh, very much, I would say, uh, I would say dominated. Of course, we have a car industry here and we have other big companies here, but um, there's definitely more IP startups, uh, be it software or whatever, um, uh, here in Munich than probably in other, in other cities in Europe, uh, in Europe. From a German perspective, would you say Munich has a has a history for innovation? Because that would seem to make sense if this was the place where all the ideas are being had. If you're doing America right now, maybe you would put the patent office in, in Silicon Valley, although that seems to be shifting, because that's where the ideas, that's where the most important patents are being, are being filed. Do you, might there be something in that? Um, so first of all, of course, Munich is a, uh, especially after World War II, it became a uh, industrial um, city very much with uh, Siemens headquarters here, with uh, BMW headquarters here, and many other uh, large companies and mid-sized companies. That is true. We have a, a biotech uh, center, which is, of course, uh, compared to the U.S. number is very small, but for European standards, uh, it, it's quite okay. And um, But you have to keep in mind that uh, most of those um startups that we're talking about then that you talk about the venture in, in the venture capital uh, capital in in san francisco uh are not so patent heavy so it's very much old industrial companies that filing mm. most patents at least in germany and, and in europe and that's because uh patents are super expensive if you really have a one to have a, a sound patent strategy then you need to spend money and you need to spend money uh, consistently and that's uh that's probably not the model for a lot of startups in, in the last 10 15 years at least where um you know speed in, in software development and building a marketplace a platform whatever have these network effects is more important in in many areas than maybe uh yeah creating a um a, a super tight uh, deep tech um patent portfolio first Interesting. Interesting. We do have a, we have a couple of good universities here, um, and 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 I think that research on universities and uh, institutes like the Fraunhofer Institute here or Max Planck uh, Institute um, are also important, where we have um, applied research uh, from university finding its way to uh, solutions for industry and and markets. Brilliant. Okay, so there we are. It's December 2017, and you are weeping as editor in chief because there's no more, no more worlds left to conquer. Um, and you are, and so you come across this opportunity to do to bring patent data to the alternative data world and to investment professionals. Um, what? How did this idea come to you? Was what were you aware? Was there a clear? Um, patent provider out there that you wanted to compete with, or would, did you did you think this was fresh, green, pleasant land? What were you? Um, what were mm. you? How did it come about? So first of all, I was really fascinated by the data set itself uh, and by the, the the different levels of information you can get out of it. If you just think a bit, it, it's a it's a very interesting database. It's um, if you get access to a global patent database, which is public information per se. You get access to every possibly commercially viable invention of the last 250 years of mankind. 
which sounds crazy and is crazy to think about. And it's it's like, a, I think it still is a, a treasure grove of, of information. Um, that's that's and that still holds well. So um, of course, um, it has been a crazy time since then starting a company. But this this excitement about uh, what we're actually dealing with here uh, is is still uh, still there. And every new employee that I can onboard here at Quantip has the same kind of experience. Uh, second, if you look at how it is used or how it was used back then, by um, by whom it was used and by whom it was not used, it became obvious to me that. Um, although the databases are used extensively by IP professionals, there's super, super underuse, I would say, from from everybody else. Um, and the reason for that was became pretty apparent um, also that those databases, although probably one of the best curated man-made databases in the world, um, those databases are filled by IP um, uh, people at the patent offices, so those people that actually read only uh, patents for whole, all of their, uh, their life, basically, um, they're doing uh, classifications, they're reading all that stuff, they're, they're citing, they're taking care of citations and so on. So all these databases are filled by the highest professionals you can think of. And um, at the same time, those databases, of course, are built for IP professionals. So they do mainly search for single inventions and, and ideas and so on. So it's all about like digging deep on one specific invention and finding out everything about that. And that's, of course, it's all the contrary to what a lot of investors would like to see because they basically want to, you know, get access to a bulk information, filter down to stuff that are interested in and get like quantifiable results uh, and information. That's basically the opposite. And so we had to, um, you know, take the raw data that we that we saw and, and, and have to, you know, transform it in a way that we can work internally uh, and give access to the information the way that uh, non-IP professionals would need. And um, when you're talking about competition, main competition when I started there, and it's still true today, comes from uh, IP service companies, large IP uh, yeah, service uh, providers that very much serve IP departments of large corporations and um, IP lawyers. And yeah, of course, they have the access, they have the domain knowledge. Um, the problem is that they don't think about in the use cases that our customers think. And if you don't have that, it's very hard to change and transform your service and your access and and maybe analytics that you can provide to to serve those needs. Fantastic. Um, you may need to educate me slightly on the on the on the patent world. So um, you're talking about kind of global patent database going back 200 years. Is that so is that literally as it sounds? So every time anyone has an idea, I mean, so it's globally regulated, it's not nationally regulated. So um, in which case, who is monitoring it and who's making sure that it's, who's paying for it? It's not a UN thing. How is, how is that working to make sure that everything's, everything's kind of as it should be with the, with the global database? Um, and so, so, well, that's the first question. What does it look like, the, the kind of base data? Yeah. So... Um... It's not a global thing per se. So there's no UN body or so. There are um, there's the so um, the World IP Organization, the WIPO, uh, which is uh, taking care of standardization, of course. And uh, that's a big big topic, which made great progress in the last uh, decade. So um, every entry in in global patent databases is uh, way more standardized than probably 30 years ago, and that's also one big plus why you maybe can do things now more easily than you. Than like thirty years ago, um, um, but generally it's a it's of course a national uh, or in, in the case of European Union uh, European uh, body uh, regulatory thing, and um, but the basic idea of how to protect patent in uh, pat, um, I, um, innovations um, uh, with the use of the of, of patent law is is very much the same. Uh, because it turns out to be a very important um, pillar in um, knowledge-based economies, and everybody wants to be in knowledge-based economies these days. So um, that's where the Chinese. That's why the Chinese, uh, for example, take a, took a deep look at the German patent system and, uh, yeah, um, basically copied huge, big parts of that into their own mm -hmm. system, uh, and why where everybody's like, uh, yeah, coming to uh, more or less the same conclusions over time. So what we see right now is a. Um, uh, a system where we're talking about different jurisdictions, of course, where you file a patent in the European Union, you file a patent in 
in in uh, for the Euro, of the of the US patent office USPTO but um you see a big part of that is very much standardized uh you see um a, a, a procedure for uh, filing your invention in in basically many many countries at the same time, which is the PCT. We have an an, an IPC uh, classification system, uh, uh, international uh, patent classification system, which which is used by almost everybody. Uh, so there's a huge part of that whole regulatory system. Yeah, has been standardized and, and agreed upon by uh, over decades and decades um, by those. Um, single patent offices around the world which when it is comes very to... nice which is very nice for you because yeah, you are because because the more the more standardized it is internationally then the more you can build processes which can kind of just be read across to look i built this for germany but it also it, it doesn't take much tweaking to be able to um scrape to take the u.s data and and hopefully the china data as well and 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 turn it into into quant usable um exactly uh data so it's yeah. a um so that so it's a kind of the fact that the world is aligning on this naturally is 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 very pleasant for you um but so let's go from the okay so so what quant ip does is it uh accesses this group of databases or this kind of this international group of databases of patents which have been filed um and it scrapes them um or does it or does it scrape them or does it buy them and it then um and then it transforms that data into um into uh, investor readable or, or or into useful form can you talk a little bit through that process yeah sure um so we actually do buy the raw data from one provider who takes the effort to um collect uh, information or a, a raw database access from, from 80 patent offices uh, and, and more uh, from around the globe. And so we don't have to deal with different update cycles and so on. So we get the raw data in a, in a very good good format already here uh, for the use cases at Quant IP. And then our main task is um, to map that raw data correctly to um, um, legal entities, corporations, corporate trees, um, um, correctly. And um, if just to give you an example, so large companies like here in, in Munich, for example, Siemens um, is filing with with more than four to five hundred subsidiaries um, and and related entities on behalf of Siemens, um, uh, the listed uh, mother company. Then, so you have to take care of um, yeah cleaning the data, high quality mapping, and that's a, a huge bulk of work, of course, for us. Uh, and that is um, a very important groundwork that everybody who has to deal with big data uh, has to do first before going into analytics at all. Um, second, we do um, yeah we try to translate stuff that is. Um, hard to read, let's say, for non-IP professionals. I think the most important um, or the most vivid example would be the IPC classification system. So there is a, a classification system in place, which is hierarchical, which is super nice and clean, and which is, again, very well curated by all those patent offices around the world. And uh, the WIPO takes care of the, of the standardization of that. So um, what's, what's, what's it classifying? It's classifying classifying inventions. So you see a patent officer getting a new patent application on its desk. And um, one of his tasks is not only to find out whether this invention is really new and there's like uh, th that you actually are able to grant a, an, a patent on that invention, but also where to put that patent application or that invention in terms of classification. So which technology, technical classes is this um, invention touching upon? And there are uh, there's not a one-on-one -on -one correlation. So if you um, um, filing for an invention in a certain field for a certain uh, new, yeah filing for a new invention, most likely it's going to be two, three, or many more uh, classifications that the patent officer thinks that this is uh, this is touching, and uh, US they they will assign a couple of of classifications to that. And at the very lowest level of this hierarchy, we're talking about more than 300,000 uh, classifications. So this is a super granular uh, technical classification system, which of wow. course is very important if you need to search that and find that stuff again. And that's what patent officers do. So the good thing about, and that's why we have this high quality database as such, is because the people that inserted the information to the database, the patent offices are actually the ones who are using it as well. So they do know that when I they are not you know, uh, good at... Um, 
classifying those inventions they they are the ones to uh, the you know have the problem with that not finding the invention uh, next time to search mm. for it so uh, it's a very good incentive uh, system uh, to keep the data very high quality um yeah and this is the the, the classification process in in very broad terms how um, yeah. just just on that how um so how expert do these patent officers and their classifications have to be and the reason i ask it is because for example um, as I understand it, uh, an investor investing in healthcare mm-hmm. might potentially use uh, patent data to spot a new drug coming down the line, mm-hmm. which could either have huge positive effects for the company putting it out, or it could completely swamp um, a drug which already exists on the market because mm-hmm. it's cheaper or whatever, or more effective or whatever. But that ability that kind of uh alpha that that kind of getting ahead of the market is that do you feel that that investor will usually be able to find that kind of detail in the in the classification data or will the will and so it's the patent officer who's the expert or mm-hmm. would the investor be needing to be having that kind of medical scientific knowledge themselves in order to be spotting it no i i do think it's uh probably there's no better way to, than to rely on the expertise of the patent officers. Those patent officers are recruited uh, from universities mainly um, um, after uh, uh, like working in research in, in the area of in question. Most of them have a PhD, at least here for European patent office, that I, that's true. And they have been working in the field that they're going to cover already for a couple of years. And then they're assigned to a very confined small area of, of technical, um, yeah, a, a technical area, and they only work with that for years. So probably they know every relevant invention in their field of the last five to ten years. Wow, that's how they they work. So it's They're a really specialist. A, they specialize super specialized work. You could also argue that it's probably the most boring work for these super high professionals. So you take yeah. on with the, the people with the like really great minds and and a lot of you know um, uh, academic cage, cage uh, them, cage and them, and you cage them in in, <laughs> in a very golden cage. I can tell you that's a very golden cage of you. You have because because you have to pay them basically off for for taking on that very boring work. Um, but that that's happening, and so I think that it's very hard. You will find. Um, a database again that is that is filled by more professional people and more knowledgeable people than in this case, and uh, this goes super super granular, and that means you have super you know um, uh, experts in in uh, super focused experts in the, in their technical areas. It sounds wonderfully German. It sounds like the um, it sounds like the description of the German industrial machine. You know, the middle stand where you've got people <laughs> who are absolute experts doing the most meticulous job and doing it all their career. And so, as a result, they're just the the quality is incredibly high. It's it's a kind of microcosm of that kind of German machine. It's great. Um, but um, so okay, so you were talking me through the process. So you've got these wonderful classifications, which is incredibly granular. So it's wonderfully deep de- data and um, and and very um, yeah, very powerful. It sounds like. Um, and so uh, you you were so you where does and what's the next step in Quantip's um, process? Yeah. I I just to to try to to finish the the idea of how we translate um, or what kind of services we do to actually make this data more accessible. And I think one. One good example is the classification system. Where again, so we're talking about 300,000 plus uh, categories at the very bottom of the pyramid. Um, we chose a level. Uh, the good thing about it is so granular. The bad thing is so granular um, because um, mm-hmm. these are technical classifications, meaning that you talk. If you were to read descriptions of those classifications, most likely you're not going to be able to understand what the hell is this. And the reason for that, it's, it's, it's very technical, it's very precise, and uh, you, you end up with two or three lines of explaining a very technical term. And uh, I just give you, give you an example. So um, the term for, or the classification, which is very clear in this case for batteries and fuel cells, which is a term that everybody understands, uh, is a two to three sentence uh, description uh, describing a transformation of chemical energy into into electrical energy, for example, right? Mm-hmm. And that term, um, you, you, it's first of all, it's hard to understand. Second, if you were to offer a service like we do, it's not searchable. You know, there's no term you can search for. Nobody searches for chemical energy, right? 
Mm -hmm. uh, everybody searches for batteries. So what we did, for example, is to go to, to one specific level of the hierarchy and to translate and relabel basically those IPC classifications, about 1,000 of them, into labels that actually can be used for search and it can be understood if you do a presentation and you do a visualization of the whole thing. Mm -hmm. So that's translation service that we did just to open up and the, the IPC classification system for use for people that are non-IP professionals. So, so that's so that's the, that's another step that you did, which is trying, which is taking that granularity and just making it a little bit more readable by moving up a layer, essentially, and, and attaching words which um, people might want to search or people would definitely recognize slightly more descriptive. Yes, um, to make it more useful. Okay, um, and next step. Yeah, next step, I think that, that, that with that, we have a kind of a base level where you say, okay, I know have know that the, the inventions are and the patents are assigned to the right entities. And um, that's it. We did so, that we did also for uh, to create some, some backtest history. So good thing about, of course, that you have timestamps in the, in the patent uh in the patent databases, because that's actually one of the most important things, because yeah, only you can you know secure your invention uh, as a patent if you are the first one to invent something to file for. So timeline is very important. So you have timestamps on everything. So we are we're able to create uh, data feeds going back to 1995. Um, that's which comes in very handy for all uh, people that do want to do um, back testings. Mm. Um, and this is the base level. Now we're starting, this is just raw process data, just to navigate the information, to find what you need and so on. And then we're talking about analytics. And one of the key things that, of course, um, everybody invest, uh, wants to know is like, um, I can count inventions or patents, um, but are they actually good or not good? So... Is this a high quality or, or low quality invention? Yeah, and we can, yeah. you know, talk about length about what is quality in inventions, but I, we can assume that, uh, let's say, uh, the CRISPR-Cas uh, uh, gene editing um, invention probably is more important than the 695,000th uh, amendment to uh, the um, process of ingesting fuel to an, in a combustion engine system. Mm. after 40 years so there will be breakthrough inventions of course there will be standardizing standardized uh, standard setting inventions there will be just inventions which take a more innovative step uh, that's from the technical part and of course the other um side of the metal is like from not from away from the technical part it's like how how easy it is or how important is an invention for an actual product how much value does it add how much more efficient does a product get how much better does a product get by introducing that invention uh, into your product and that's something where probably the you need to step back from like the outside world and maybe to have the inside view and say okay what does the company actually think about that and um, those are the main two areas that that you can can look at so internal evaluation from the company how product relevant this is for me and the external evaluation from someone's like, okay, this really is a breakthrough technology and, and a very important innovative step. So you need extra data. You need your data, but then you need some kind of qualitative data from inside the company as well. Uh, no, that's actually, we, we, ha we do have pretty good proxies inside the patent uh, uh, data. So you don't, okay. you don't need to leave the, the, the sphere of the patent database for that. Um, so what most people did so far, uh, quantifying, because if you do a qualitative approach, of course, you what you could do is, of course, to, to give uh, an, an invention to an, a single invention or a patent application to an IP lawyer or an other expert and then uh, ask for uh, evaluation. And he will, of course, uh, research around the area. Um, if he's an expert, that takes not too much time. If he's not an expert, it takes a lot of time. And then we, he will charge you a couple of thousand euros or, or dollars um, for a you know, report, written report, where he, in, in great length, says that he cannot really tell you if that's really good or not, most of the time, because uh, it's really hard um, to do that, um, uh, yeah, without the knowledge of, of, of what the company is actually trying to do with it. Um, so the main reason here why we need to go quant here is, is of course, cost, because we're talking about three to four million new patent applications coming in globally. There's no way every, that every we, day. No. no, no, that's per year. Per year, but, okay. Uh, but still, uh, we're it's building on like a we're building on a yeah uh, building on a 
quite large set of, of patent applications already and then adding three to four million per year. Mm. So um, there's no way that, that there we can do any, any good to that. And especially when it comes to um, analyzing larger patent portfolios, right? So that's not possible. So we need a, need a, we need a, a different quantifiable approach. And again, um, there are ways to try to do that. So first of all, how, how important is this invention in terms of technical level? Uh, one one key indicator for that is uh, used uh, or used by many in the IP world as well is uh, citations. So as in the academia, you have a citation system in, in the patent world and most patents cite their own uh, cite patents uh, again. So they're staying within the system. But of course, you can cite also scientific papers. You can cite any anything um, uh, where you where you basically refer to as an uh, for the ideation for your invention, and the important thing is you need to do this your own if you file, and the patent officer will also look for for relevant um, uh, information, relevant patents to cite for, and this is the main work of them, of course. Um, why? Because they need to find out whether the 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 invention they got on their desk is actually that new. Or if if anything else was already there, so we use a lot of citations here, and that gives you already a, a pretty good indicator of how important that's going to be. So if there's few, no, so I'm not I'm not maybe not mm-hmm. following because if if it's if there's few citations, mm-hmm. if there's a lot of citations, then it suggests that it is referencing a lot of other people's work, and your five hundred thousandth, um, you know, yes. form of of of. Uh, patent for yes. uh, bringing fuel into a combustion engine that potentially could cite all the previous 499,000. So in, in that true. way, citations would be a negative thing. It strikes me that the best indicator for citations would be how many other um, patents of the future cite, in, uh, sorry, cite, cite this one. But the trouble is that would be a very lagging indicator for an investment. Exactly. You're, you're pointing to... at the right direction here already. Um, gotta... <laughs> so, so yeah, yeah it's, a, it's, it's about the citations that a patent application receives or an invention receives that are the indicator for high quality. So the, the, the CRISPR-Cas uh, invention patent will probably receive, I don't know, by the fact of 500 more than average uh, citations uh, in, 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 it, in the biotech space than, uh, yeah than average right mm. so this is going to be one of the most cited patent uh patents ever mm-hmm. most likely because it's so important everybody you know needs to build his patent applications on that um like in acad- academia the more cited your paper is the more important it is probably um yeah. and that's that's how the logic works as well in the patent space uh you're absolutely right with your sec with your second uh, thought that that by the time you find out that a, a new patent application or an invention is cited a lot, that information is, okay, you get basically a confirmation, but the information is such as very old or the patent application can be very old. And that's true that we see in the data. So most significant you know, variance in citations only happens about five years after filing. Before that, you have either zero or one or two citations. Mm. Because, you, of course, people need to, you know, find read that it, read it and read it and it. then understand and then builds up right yeah and you have a, a filing date you have a publication date so it takes about 18 months after filing before that patent is already is, is is published at all before that nobody can cite it because nobody knows and then um yeah it takes uh, just the market so to say to to a little bit of time to find out that is actually that important and then uh, it gets cited a lot and it takes time and you're absolutely right um that lack uh, is a problem, especially if you want to evaluate the the most interesting uh, mm. um, inventions, which are of course the newest ones. So for all, let's say, venture guys that are looking at deep tech startups, that indicator is way too late because mm. we're talking a patent portfolio of a young company will only have young patent applications with almost no citations by default. Mm-hmm. But of course, for larger companies, it's also true. Nobody's really interested in the in the Siemens application from 10 years ago. You are interested in the most recent ones in terms of where they are going, what direction, what what fields they are uh, working on, uh, what kind of quality that is. That's where you want to be. Like you only were focusing on the most recent uh, applications. And um, that's why we uh, created, um, you know, we tried to bridge that gap because we knew that our customers would be not fine with like, finding out five years later that this is actually a good invention. So we're trying to bridge that gap by creating a machine learning algorithm that is actually able to predict with a certain variance, of course, but able to predict the number of citations 
uh, five years later. And that's actually where we come in and say, okay, we build smart analytics around the use cases of our clients with having in mind their use cases. And, and that's why we are probably different than, than IP service providers before, because for their client clientele, IP departments, that was not important. They only, they are fine with descriptives, right? So like this has five citations, 10 citations, that's fine. They have no use for like, okay, how many citations most likely this is going to have in five years time. But with our clientele, that's important. Are you are you trading your machine learning model with that uh, very early data? L last time there was an immediate reaction like this. It went on to have lots and lots of citations. When mm. last time, and then there was a if there was a, a, a an initial reaction like so, it didn't have many citations after five years. Are you mm -hmm. are you trading it like that? Um, not no. Uh, we are uh, training our model more on features that are very consistent over time uh, so what we did basically here is speak to experts in the field uh, patent officers that actually have those applications on a desk and uh, all the time at ip lawyers as well and we we actually basically asked them so if you if, if i only give you five minutes and and you tell me whether this is a very good so is so uh, application or probably probably uh, not so good application. Just a very broad in very broad terms. What are the things that you look at where you say, okay, I, I see already reading through the abstract, I see two or three patterns where I see this is not going to be a very good invention. <laughs> and um, those kind of things that we we did with like uh, various um, experts. So we, we collected about 20 to 25 uh, features that were A, uh, deemed important by a lot of experts, and B, were machine-readable. And we handed it over to the machine learning algorithm to actually train uh, and see which of those are, are going to be have a, have a good um, track record of, of, of being able to um, yeah, uh, indicate uh, which are going to be more successful in this case in terms of citations. The good thing about uh, our database, of course, we have a lot of training data. So you have millions and millions of uh, of, of uh, applications that you can train on, yes. And, and you can, particularly if you're keeping the timestamps, then you can exactly, know. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. You have super clean uh, training data for for in sample training and out of sample testing and so on. So that that's uh, from a, from from a data scientist perspective, that's probably a, a, a dream dream uh, database to work with. Yeah, for sure. So, thinking of other potential investment strategies that could be used on this. Um, yep. So, there's there, you've just kind of pointed towards one, which is there's a new patent out. It looks valuable for these reasons. Um, could you also do you think or are you aware of people? I wonder if perhaps you could look at Apple's. Um, how many patents that they are issuing this year, and mm -hmm. make make assumptions about the R and D, how much they're putting into their into investment in R and D as a result, and then you can kind of play forward. Perhaps it takes two or three years for it to come out in their in their products or something like that, and you can kind of build that picture. Um, it's unclear. It may be unclear how good each patent is, but if they've got lots, then it suggests there's lots of activity, which might be a positive thing. Yeah. Yeah, you're touching on those use cases that we have with actual clients, and and there's there's a big variance of that. But I'm I'm probably trying to to touch here a couple of those, and and you already mentioned. Um, first of all, you mentioned do we can we find out from patent data what kind of R and D is going on in in the company or has been going on like two or three years prior to that? Because yeah, there's a lag time between spending R and D and actually having a patent output. This was a use case that brought up uh, from a, from a Japanese customer. Uh, actually, because um, you have to to know that R&D spending is something uh, that companies don't have to um, uh, um, publish. So you have in the database, you have companies that do R&D or publish R&D spending mm. and they have patents, which is like a sounds, you know, reasonable thing you would ex uh, you would uh, expect. Then you have companies that uh, do R&D spending, but they have no patent output, which is kind of weird because, they have, okay, you do R&D spending, but you don't secure, you don't have any inventions that seem to be so important that you yeah, think about securing them. 
third, there are companies that show no R&D spending, but do have patent output. Clearly, they do R&D, but they don't want to show for whatever reason. And that actually um, was the use case for one of the Japanese clients. They're, they were able to you know, go from the patent data and actually uh, increase coverage in terms of R&D spending by 30%. Uh, for their for the 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 companies that are looking at um, number two, you mentioned it's like okay now in terms of performance alpha generation is that possible at all? Uh, of course, the the basic assumption is if you look uh, why should patent data be relevant? I think that there's there's one step before that is like do you think that innovative companies over the at least mid to long term do outperform non innovative companies? Yeah. If that, if you think that's true, and I'm so so far, I've never come across someone who says no. Um, so this, I'm, you may, like, I may, I may be the first. So okay. keep going. So you you think that innovation doesn't pay off in the long run? No, okay. There was uh, just just well, let me well let me just come in quickly. Is that yeah. um, I heard somebody uh, maybe on the podcast, maybe somewhere else, was saying that uh, when they were initially, they were the, what they were looking for in two thousand five, two thousand six was high capital expenditure. Because mm-hmm. high capex indicated kind of sloppiness, and so high capex could all, could easily have been R and D. You can you can chase white elephants. You can you can put a lot of money into the wrong projects, and 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 this person was shorting those companies, and it turned out to be a very successful policy. So that's it. But innovation, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily argue with. But I mean, capex, I mean, that capex could, can could be. be true. But if that were true. Then probably capitalism would have a big problem in the long run, right? Okay. So uh, if, okay. if if the solution would be to invent nothing new, and that would be the successful strategy for companies, probably the world would look pretty dire in a couple of years. Um, so if we just you know think that the market, um, in this case our customers want new, better products, then innovative companies should be more successful in the long run, right? Okay. If that's true. You only have to follow me then to to agree with me that patent data actually gives you, first of all, a indicator for innovative strength of companies and maybe even a better indicator than, for example, R&D spending. Um, does it give you an indication? Probably yes, given the fact that those uh, data points that we're looking at you should be viewed as, I always look at them as IP assets where you turn your spending that you did an R&D into assets, but only at the point where where you think that is going to be commercial, commercially important for you. So this is basically R&D spending filtered filtered out the bad ideas that didn't get through and leaving all the, the good ideas that actually may have an impact, at least the company thinks so, to your products and thereby long-term to your bottom line and top line as well. And that's what we're looking at here as a data set. So I think it's way more cleaner, way more objective than R&D spending. R&D spending, you can, yeah, as again, the, with the case of the Japanese customer, there are companies that don't show any R&D spending, but do patents. That clearly already makes the case for like R&D spending being very, very discreet uh, in terms of like, you know, regulatory forces. Uh, you know, you can declare R&D spending to a pretty wide range from zero to way, way more than you probably do R&D spending. Uh, so I think that, that patent data is a way more objective uh, thing. Um, and if that's true, it's only a matter of, of, of questions like, okay, is it just the number of patents? Is this already a good indicator for, for future performance of a company? Our back tests say yes. A couple of others say uh, yes as well. Some say no. You have to find out probably uh, out yourself. We give you all the tools to do that. Uh, second, does patent quality, um, is that a, an issue? Is efficiency in the process important? Yes, probably for some industries, no so much for others. And those are the, the kind of questions that our customers, yeah, try to find uh, out uh, when they're testing our data and trialing our data. Hmm. I, I'm, I wonder as well if there might be cultural differences in terms of different countries' relationship with patents. Oh, there was yes, a, there <laughs> yeah, and in, in, in 2015, 2016, I want to say, there was a big, I think maybe it was around then that, that China in number of patents overtook the US and there was yes. a big kind of excitement around it. But then the counter argument came through, but actually they're not that valuable. These patents, there's an awful lot of not non-valuable patents being that is true. being put through. So potentially, if you are investing in this, potentially it's it's you 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 might 
take that into account and be comparing US companies or, or something like that yeah. or, or trying to think about the cultural aspect. Yeah. Um, but you yeah. find those cultural aspects or these, I would say, non it's more, in, in China's case, more a political aspect, actually, because yeah. Uh, yeah. we see clear political goals to uh, increase the number of patent applications uh, to a certain amount in, the, in like a, a five-year plan, like 14 years ago or so. And as in all, you know, if Chinese authorities say there's a target, this target will be met, no matter what. And that's what happened in the patent game as well. So right now we're talking about more patent applications coming from China per year than in the rest of the world. Does it mean that China is more innovative than all other countries together? Definitely no. And we see that in, and we don't have to, you know, follow gut feeling or whatever. We see that in the data. So our quality indicators, for example, indicate a stark difference for the average Chinese patent. Uh, let's say versus the average European or, or US patent, a stark difference in quality. And you see also data leading to that. For for example, a lot of patent applications in China are uh, being not followed through after two years. Why that? Because after two years, you don't have the uh, tax incentives anymore to do so as a, as a company. And you only end up with costs. A lot of those Chinese uh, patents are only filed for in China, which is indicating that they are not in important for Chinese companies uh, trying to sell their products abroad. Yeah, again, the um, there is a we we created a country factor how to weight uh, these kind of differences uh, from country to country, and China is a, you know you have to discount that the China factor discounts the average Chinese patent applications by by a large factor. So. Yeah, uh, there is um, everything that you read there is probably correct, and we can quantify that pretty extensively. Very interesting, very interesting, um, Lucas. I normally get to this question much earlier, but you've—it's—it's it's your fault for being so interesting. How, um, how, uh, what? Who do you sell to? Who are the who are the clients? Who's you? Who are you focus towards? Yeah, we have a wide range of, of clients. So we we sell the obvious ones, of course, and that's where our first sales come from. Where where quant uh, quantitative um, asset managers that are looking for signals. Keep in mind that there we have very long term signals here with patents. So not nothing about day trading or or weekly uh, uh, signals here doesn't make mm -hmm. sense in a patent space because the one on one relationship that you mentioned uh, a couple of minutes ago, where they say, okay, this is a new. Uh, patent related to a possible drug uh, solution of a biotech mm -hmm. or pharmaceutical company, that one-on-one -on -one solution between patent invention and a uh, product, which is then linked to, to revenues and, and, and profit, that's most likely only happening in, in pharmaceuticals and biotech. For other areas, it's more about the statistical game because uh, you have a lot of patents in your iPhone probably, but there are from many, many different companies and only in com combining those inventions to one product, it actually creates value. And that's 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 why we take a statistical approach or it makes sense to take a statistical approach elsewhere. Um, but um, of course we have quantum mental people then because you see that all the intuitive things that we you know, think about patent data where you have a, a glimpse of an idea where the company is heading towards in which direction. You mentioned Apple, you could see that where they are going in terms of their car strategy, in terms of their wearables strategy, I'm talking about glasses or so on. You can see that in the patent data early, early on, because you always will find a patent first before you see in a product in these areas. Um, so fundamental people also, um, fundamental asset managers also like the data per se in a different way than probably the quant guys, but we are able to serve both use cases. We do have a, a bank that uh, uses the data that we serve or the, the reports that we can generate for um, um, validating the technology, um, I would say basically for technology due diligence before they, uh, for, for a, in the loan department, um, mainly aimed at companies that are either very young and are in a, in a growth path already, but but don't have a history that makes them bankable. So they're trying to figure out whether this company is like, it's just a growth fad or there's like a good substance of technology behind that idea. Uh, and the other area is uh, larger companies that are in a, in a technical or te technological transformation phase. And probably the most uh, obvious example here in, in Europe and, and especially Germany is the car supplier industry, where we see a huge technological change from combustion engines to um, to um, battery-powered uh, electric vehicles. And of course, you want to know if you give out a loan for the next 10 years, the data for, for someone who is wanted in a combustible uh, engine field of the last 20 years doesn't tell you that much about the next 10 years. 
So they're looking for indicators uh, from the from the technological part here. We also serve uh, management strategy consultancies that uh, bring our data set together with other information from inside the company, from outside the company, to build a data-driven um, consulting um, service. So it's a huge variety, and we're always getting to know new use cases uh, in, in pilot phase with our customers. And um, so it's a, it's a pretty wide range. And, and, and lastly, we, we were able to onboard the VC and PE funds as well. Um, of course, there are three main use cases here talking about deal sourcing. So are you able to find new deals uh, through patent data, which is like gives you an, a different angle on maybe, you know, everybody's searching for, through the same databases here in the VC and PE space. So maybe it's smart to yeah look at other sources of information to actually find new interesting companies. Second, of course, we can help with tech DD in the transaction um, to understand the competitive landscape around the company, trends in the company, how strong is the the patent and technology portfolio of the company actually and and you can validate maybe the stuff that you get with interviews with the management and third of all and uh, for the pe and vc space also very interesting you can of course monitor stuff because uh, it's all quantified there you timestamps there you can see you can get get the same kind of reports for the competitive landscape every six months or so and keep track of changes new entries in the competitive landscape uh, changes in the behavior of main competitors and so on and so on well, Lucas, it sounds like you have your hands full. Um, I think you've got a you've got a massive and granular and very interesting and important data set, and you've got an awful lot of customers who um, who want to get hold of it. So I think you've. Um, it sounds like you've got a lot to be getting on with. <laughs> so I won't. Uh, I won't. I won't keep you any longer. But um, but thank you so much. It's been really interesting for me. And as I say, I had never had a a, a patent alternative data provider on. So it's been an eye opener and um, and a really enjoyable conversation. So thank you, Lucas. Thank you, Mark, for giving me the opportunity.